How many men did it take to cut you down? <clears throat> Just one. Oh. He must have been some kind of monster. <clears throat> he was a woman. <laughs> Welcome back to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we're reviewing episode 7, The Broken Man. Directed by Mark Millad, written by Brian Cogman. Rotten Tomatoes gave this one a 7.8 out of 10. Pretty close to last episode. I agree with that. I have to start by apologizing for last episode. I believe I said multiple times we were talking about episode five when we were actually talking about episode six. I was a little sick last week, so. Also makes sense because we did a podcast for episode one and two, so it was technically our fifth review of this season. Yeah, I think my brain was a little bit foggy. And it's hot as balls in here. (laughs) We have to turn off the AC so that we don't get that sound in the background. So it just progressively gets hotter and hotter as the podcast goes on. (laughs) It's kind of a low-budget operation, folks. We do our best, though. Before we get into this episode, we have a few emails to answer about the questions we asked in last week's episode. Awesome. We asked first, is Danny a hero, a villain, or walking the fine line? So we didn't get a lot of responses on this one. However, John from Pennsylvania said, Danny has to be a hero, right? Because we need dragons to fight White Walkers after all. Well, I dig that. It's true, but she might be the hero for us for us like right now. But then once she gets everything, we've seen that she she doesn't have control of her dragons if she's just trying to be the good person. And uh, also, she's at her best when she's fighting. So she might turn into, uh, you know, a bad ruler after that. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. The fact that she is a conqueror, that she does have some of that Targaryen-ness in her. And I think really what I like about John's response is it brings up the main question. George's series is called A Song of Ice and Fire. So we've always known that it's going to come down to that main battle. True. But we've never exactly known what is that key going to be. A lot of people assume it's the dragons, but is it really? We've talked about a lot of alternatives or a combination of different things, and I think the answer to that will lead you to, is she a hero or a villain? It's going to come down to the blood of the human. Do they have the fire blood, the Targaryen blood? Within them? Mm Mm-hmm. We talked about wildfire last time. Does that defeat them? We've talked about a person who is actually a combination of ice and fire, such as John, with his possible parentage. So, you know, it could get a lot deeper than all that. Okay, so thank you, John. Our next question we got some more responses to, which was, who is your favorite villain? So I have condensed from the answers, it seems like our top three favorites are Ramsey, Littlefinger, and Tywin. 
Sarah from New York says, I would have to say Tywin is my favorite villain because as mean as he was, there was also an intelligence and a strength to his character. He was unconcerned with what his children actually wanted from life, but he also did work hard to uphold the Lannister name in his own way. He kept some measure of order to King's Landing for many years, which perhaps we didn't see until he was gone and Cersei was left in control. We have certainly seen worse parents, such as Sam's dad, Gilly's father, Craster, Robin's mother, even Cersei at certain points. It was always fun to watch Tywin plan and scheme when he was on TV. Wow, I like that response. Who was that from? Sarah. That's really smart because I, I always thought these, these older characters who know how to fight and who know how to plan ahead, who know how to play the chess game, mm-hmm. they would be valuable going against these White Walkers. Yeah. I mean, having him on our side, because he's going to be on the human side once that went down, would be great. I think there's definitely that gaping hole felt ever since he's been gone in King's Landing. You know, maybe we didn't even realize how much sort of order he was keeping, mm. the structure that he was imposing there. And oh, yeah. It's really been lost. It's I gone think. to shit since he was taking a shit since and he died. died. <laughs> Absolutely true. I also agree with the Ramsey and Littlefinger as alternative favorite villains. Yeah. I do too. I think uh, the villain that's really cool is the Night's King. But we don't see him and he doesn't talk. So, I mean, we see him rarely. So he can't be a favorite yet. But I think, I'm hoping, at least the final season, we're going to see a lot of him. And uh, he might he might be pretty badass. Well, and thus far, he is the only definitive 100% bad guy that they've given us really no gray to his yes, backstory. Well, yeah, now they have yeah, when you see a how bit. The, the children have created him. That's, that's true. And I hope through Bran's... Uh, going in the past, we'll find out what happened to him once he was stabbed and then what resulted in him going against the Children of the Forest. That's going to be a great episode if they do that, or Absolutely. a few episodes. I want to thank everyone for emailing us and tweeting us uh, your responses, and I also want to thank everyone for listening. We are building quickly our uh, listeners, and uh, we just want to thank you, and it makes it even more fun knowing that there's more people on board listening to us and being a fellow clatcher and uh, just ask you to give us five star review and write us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars, write us a review. You can just say awesome, cool, whatever. It'll take you two seconds and it'll just help to get other people listening. Yeah. And continue to tell your friends. We see those download numbers increasing, which is great. We want to keep up the good work and hopefully continue to offer a podcast that you enjoy listening to. With that, let's jump into episode seven, The Broken Man. I have to say, I absolutely loved this episode. Just when I think every time it comes on, Game of Thrones can't get any better. It does. It continually hits that mark for us. Overall, there was so much visual beauty to this Mm -hmm. episode. The places we got to see that I didn't think we would ever get on screen because they weren't major elements to the story. Right. And even if it was only small glimpses of it, you know they spent money on this. Lots of it. Um, Bear Island. I mean, we get that one pretty quick view of it from the outside where we see the castle and the waterfalls in front. Yep. Absolutely gorgeous. Pre-credit sequence. Pretty awesome. 
Yeah, I did a little looking because I couldn't remember if we had ever done that, where we went right into the show before seeing that opening sequence, the title sequence. They did do that in the season premiere, so we were right in thinking that pilot episode had the shot of the White Walkers and what was going on north before they jumped in, but this is the only time other than that. It's impactful just because... We're not used to it. We're, we're waiting for that sequence that, uh, and we're like, oh, shit, put it, down your coffee. It felt like a different show, right? It, I think it was really stressing the importance of that scene by mm-hmm. putting it first. They wanted it in your face. And so I like that. One of our fun facts, I read a little bit about what Martin had said. He said that his two most thematic speeches in the entire series were the Vari's Riddle pondering what the nature of power is. We'll go back to that later. And Septon Maribald's speech, which is Ray in the TV series, the guy we see in the pre-credit scene, about the suffering of war. Oh, yeah. Very and impactful. I want to read that whole broken man speech later on in the episode. It's kind of long, so we'll save it to the end for those of you who have read the books and don't want to hear it again. Uh, I do think it has a lot of meaning, though, and I do look to these two speeches If Martin says these are the two key things in his series, probably Hmm. something we want to give a little bit deeper of a look to. Yeah. When we finally get to our opening title sequence, we see in Westeros, King's Landing, River Run, Winterfell, and The Wall. So only River Run being added since last time. And in Essos, only Bravos and Marine. Overall, in this episode, people we didn't see Littlefinger, Danny, Tyrion, and Varys. Melisandra, Bran, Rickon, Ramsey, Sam and Gilly, and Jorah. We didn't see a lot of people in this episode, but particularly interesting to me, this is the first time in the entire Game of Thrones series that Tyrion has been absent for two episodes in a row. I never thought about that before, but we've only had one episode at a time of a stretch where we don't see him. That's because he's awesome. (laughs) Definitely because he's awesome, but also has to be, again, just that subtle influence of if you're seeing a character that much, he has to be so key to the storyline, right? Yeah, and also his storyline, he he traveled a lot, and he was always in the middle of what was most important that season, if you think about it. we spoke about that on a former podcast, that we actually do see the world through his eyes in many ways. Yeah. And our deaths for this episode were the villagers and Brother Ray. A lot of villagers. <laughs> Let's go through our new faces and places. Number one is Brother Ray on TV, known to book readers as Septon Maribald. Uh, Benioff and Weiss said that these are not exactly meant to be the same people. Brother Ray on TV is kind of a combination of two book characters. The Septon Maribald that we are familiar with, combined with another guy named Elder Brother. So in the books, Maribald is a septon who preaches to the common folk. He happens to meet Brienne and Pod on the road, and he brings them to a place called the Quiet Isle, where they're really kind of separated geographically. It's very hard to get to, and so the people there are safe. And they meet a man named Elder Brother. He's one of the male penitents living there who tells them a story about this man that they have there, who they have rehabilitated. They never say by name that it is the Hound, that it's Sandor, but we are led to believe from certain clues it's very heavily implied that that's him. Okay. 
So we've been waiting a long time to see that scene. So you had an inkling last week who the broken man could be. Oh, yeah. I was pretty sure that this was going to be him. And I was super excited that we were going to get to see this scene. It was so interesting in the books how they had to get there Mm -hmm. visually. Another way that it was hidden was you had to traverse these sort of marshy swamps where it didn't look like you could step because it was almost quicksand. Okay. So the Septon was leading Brienne and Pod there. You had to know exactly where to step, that there were rocks underneath that you had to make your way, the proper, like, meandering, twisting path. Right. And I kept thinking how cool it was going to be. Most of the people that lived there they could only speak, what was it, one day a month, maybe? Oh. They had all taken a sort of vow of silence, so only the elder person who was living there could talk to you. Just a lot of interesting elements going on. So I was a little disappointed that we didn't get that. We just got these people in a sort of outdoor village somewhere in the Riverlands. But it was really great to see the hound back, and Ian McShane as Brother Ray was amazing. Ian McShane is awesome. I love him in every movie that he's in. He's no, I mean, he's been in thousands. I I feel like I say this about all these new characters that come in. Yep. Um, John Wick, Jack the Giant Slayer, Pirates of the Caribbean. Hmm. Just to name a few. And he's, I mean, he kind of plays a similar role in all of them, but it's so well played that I don't mind. Uh, he's in for one episode this season and people are going to remember him. Yeah, I was really surprised when I saw that he was going to be on. I figured this would be an ongoing story. I had no idea he would just be a one and done type of character, but delivered an amazing performance. Well, if you speak peace, you die. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. We have no weapons. We have all we have is our hands and a little food and each other. Well, you're going to die. That's true, unfortunately. And and we'll talk a little more about him when we get into that location. For now, let's keep going through our new faces and places. A new location of Bear Island. Like I said, amazing to see this place. It is a remote island in the north, which lies within the Bay of Ice on the western coast. So if you think of Westeros, um, the very edge line, there's a little island. It's just south of that region that's north of the wall. So they really are one of the farthest northern areas. This is when I wish we had that TV behind us and everyone could see us. Because looking (laughs) at it on a map, which is what I'm doing right now, you see that there's a good amount of water between Bear Island and the main mass of land that we're always seeing a storyline on. Westeros, yep. It's far north and it's there's land north of it. Again, there's water, but it's not protected by the wall. No. Because it's off of... Yeah, it's land. that those northern lands, um, they really are probably the closest undefended region to that. So if you think of Winterfell, how north that is, even much further north than that on the mm-hmm. mainland part of Westeros is the last hearth. That's where the Umbers live. So now if you pretty much draw a line all the way out to the western coast and out to the sea, that's where Bear Island is. I was going to say, I wonder if these walkers could... Uh or whites, sorry, could walk on water or, or go into water. Mm-hmm. And then I, I'm reminded of Fear the Walking Dead when we were like, just go in the water because they can't go in the water. And then we noticed that they, they that can. They could, yeah. Well, we don't really know what they're capable of, right? Well, I'm getting a visual in my head that uh, they're able to turn 
this is not true, people. This is in my head, my imagination. <laughs> but when they, I can see the five guys. Well, there's four now, right? Mm-hmm. At the edge of the water. And then they start walking onto the water and it turns to ice to under ice. them. Yeah. And so they can just walk over that like it's a, a, a pond. And then they can just go around the wall. But you have to believe that they would know this, right? If yeah. that was a capability they had, why haven't they done it yet? Also, this bay is called Bay of Ice, so it's already ice. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty harsh region. And we get that in the books from Jorah talking about it, his point of view of his old homeland mm-hmm. and how he tried to take his first wife there. And she was sort of a prissy woman. She needed to have very nice things and live in very nice places. And she was from Essos, where the climate is very warm. And she did not survive there. She no. couldn't make it between the harsh weather, the food that they had, being so isolated. We really got an intimate view of that. We also learn about the people that lived there. Just to give you an idea, Bear Island is relatively poor. It's densely forested. It has a large bear population, hence its name. During the Age of Heroes, Roderick Stark was said to have won control of the island from an ironborn in a wrestling match. So way back in the day, it used to belong to, I don't know if it was the Greyjoys then, but some ironborn. He won it from them and gave it to the Mormonts. And ever since then, they've been loyal to the Starks. That's where the relationship began. And they have this very fierce warrior woman tradition because most of the way the men make a living is on fishing boats, working in the fields, so they're gone for long periods of time, and the women have to be prepared to defend the homes from raids of ironborn and wildlings, which they see frequently. That's why we see this very tough breed of woman living there. You would think that they would be known for their boats and ships as well, considering they're an island. Yeah, I guess it's just because they're such a small and poor people that they can't do that. But we do see this amazing character, new face for us, Lady Leanna Mormont. What you have to understand, my lady, is that... I understand that I'm responsible for Bear Island and all who live here. So why should I sacrifice one more moment life for someone else's war? She is the 10-year-old girl who is essentially running <laughs> the place right now. She's the niece of... Gior Mormont, so the old bear, the former Lord Commander, and first cousin to Jorah Mormont. You will famously remember her for when Stannis sent all the northern houses letters asking them to acknowledge him as the rightful king, and she sent back the letter saying, Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north whose name is Stark. Now, can you just really quickly, because you had to do this for me, when you started saying that, well, that's... Drora Mormond and blah, 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 Mormond. And I'm like, who the fuck are they? I don't remember them. Can you just explain who they are real quick? Right. So Gior Mormont, as we were just saying, is the former Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. He's the guy that was in charge when John first came there. He's the one who took a liking to John and made him the steward, knowing he would then become the next Lord Commander someday, and took them on the ranging to the Fist of the First Men, where he was eventually killed at Craster's Keep, at that mutiny that was staged okay. by the, the Night's Watchmen, unfortunately, because mm. they were mad at Craster and, in their bloodlust, wound up killing the old bear. What season was this? Uh, two or three. Okay. 
Um, he's also the one that gave Longclaw to John, the Valyrian steel blade that we see when he changed the pommel to have a dire wolf. So ever since he lost his heir, I think he kind of saw John as the son that he never had. So Jorah was supposed to be heir to Bear Island. We all know Jorah, Danny's former, what do you even call him? Right-hand man, okay. um, who's got grayscale now. Uh, he was from Bear Island. Like we said, he had this wife who he was enamored with, but her lifestyle was well beyond his means. He could not afford to keep her in the way she needed to be kept. Mm -hmm. And eventually, in desperation, turned to selling slaves to try to keep up with the lifestyle, which is, of course, illegal in Westeros. He was caught out, I believe, by Ned Stark, actually, oh, wow. and exiled out of Westeros. They let him live, but they said he's never allowed to return. So with Gior at the wall, forfeiting his rights, and Jorah exiled, they really didn't have an heir. And that's how we wind up with little Lady Lyanna. That's what women can do to you. <laughs> uh, the other new location that we saw in this episode was Deepwood Mott, home to the Glovers, who wound up turning the Starks down. Deepwood Mott is located northwest of Winterfell in the Wolfswood area, sort of near to the coast of the Bay of Ice, so a little bit close to where we're talking about here with Bear Island, but on the mainland. And of course, we also saw Lord Robet Glover, who is in control of Deepwood Mott. He's the one that Sansa and Jon were speaking to when they went there. And the last place, we talked about it a little bit last time, but we actually saw it on screen this episode is River Run. A little backstory on that. It is the castle located at a major fork in the river where the trident is joined by the Tumblestone River. So what's cool about this is in peacetime, the castle is located on a triangle of islands where the two rivers meet, so it has water on two sides. And in times of war, they open up several levees to flood the remaining third side, essentially turning it into a small island and making it more difficult to attack. Whoa, th they have a mechanical moat, Yep. essentially. That's pretty cool. To turn it into an island. That's genius. Yeah. So let's get into our crow's eye view, our overview of locations for this episode. We could start out in the north, where we see John, Sansa, and Davos searching for allies to retake Winterfell. First, they secure the allegiance of the wildlings, the wildlings agree that they owe John for hard home and that soon it will be everyone's fight. And thanks to the giant, everyone stands up for snow and they, snow. they come to fight. We also see them eventually secure House Mormont, although really not through anything Sansa or John are able to say or do. It's really Davos saving the day here. What did you think about this interaction between Davos and the young lady? Well, I thought it was typical of Davos to come in and uh, save the day with his words. And the fact that it was to this young lady, I think, was uh, kind of a, a callback to um, that other... Yeah, his relationship with Shireen. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I th it made this scene that could have been kind of boring, even though... Uh, what's her name? was awesome. The actress. Yeah, Liana. Uh, but showing... 
I mean, the, the juxtaposition between Jon Snow talking to the wildlings and being able to, to speak his words in, in the plain manner and get his passion pushed through and, and really being able to touch them. And then with this, where he can't, he doesn't know how to speak to these kinds of people. Totally ineffective, yeah. And this guy comes in and, and uh, saves the day with his words. I thought it, it, it was just goes along to show you again how invaluable this dude is yeah well everybody has their their niche right so john is kind of uh, more able to relate to the wildlings even though he was raised in a castle by nobility he essentially is a stark even though he's a snow Mm -hmm. but because of everything he's been through in his life trials he really gets the wildlings more than he does the southern folk as they would call them right davos i think has experienced a lot when he was working with stannis in being able to talk to these houses and realize where they're coming from and what they need and like you said, because of his bond with Shireen, is able to talk to a younger girl. And he sees this very same, I think, pride and fierceness that Stannis had in this little girl in certain ways. And, you know, it's very poignant how he's able to notice you've been thrust into this position. You are such a young child. You didn't ask for any of this, but you are able to deal with it so well. And it's so clear that you're just trying to fiercely protect your people very small people that have already been through a lot. Yeah. Um, but it's the same bottom line as what we said to the wildlings. At the end of the day, nobody's going to be able to hide from this fight. You're all going to have to join. So why not join together? Yeah. And she sees the wisdom in that. Now, a lot of people were having some complaints with the fact that the way her character was written, not the way this actress portrayed the role because she did a fantastic job but the way the character was actually laid out was a little too adult and unbelievable Mm -hmm. the fact that she literally did not act like a 10 year old in any way shape or form but i think if you do get that backstory of knowing the book mormons a little more what type of people they are what they have to live through um i really feel like this is what you would be seeing at this age, especially in somebody that's been put in a position of power and needs to help care for her people. So I like it. I agree. It. Yeah. And it looks like where they live is very rugged. So it's not like this is a Sansa being thrown into it after her father dies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all really great that they get them on their side until we find out that it's only 62 fighting men we're getting such a shame mm. and they're they're only able to recruit a small number of houses by the time they're done uh, we see them go next to house glover where they are brutally turned down yeah well i remember that scene when i saw the castle that they're in or whatever that is visually i remembered the scene that this this guy is referring to when they get overthrown yeah and it was brutal it was brutal Well, I mean, he starts out by making a very good point. We see that the actions of our characters, how they ripple out so far into the future. Everybody knew this was a colossal mistake Mm -hmm. when Rob married that woman. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to marry the Frey girl. I mean, thank goodness he didn't marry into the Freys because what a nightmare that would be. But his decision had really far-reaching consequences. And it seemed like Catelyn knew that at the time. He didn't understand how big that was going to be to follow his heart and how 
it cost the support of the northern houses through till today. They were like, oh, he's off <coughs> cavorting with this foreign woman while yeah. we're dying for his cause. And so, no, the, the word Stark doesn't mean as much anymore because we've been through all of this. We finally come home. Our home is taken. And who helps us? Not you guys, the Boltons. Yep. So I understand his side tremendously. And I don't know if they're trying to portray uh, when Sansa speaks up that she's like strong now, because to me, it just felt like a brat. To me, I have never seen this transformation of character with her that people are talking about. I think she's been through a lot of awful things and she's had to be strong. But I don't know that that means she's grown at all. And I think she's been showing it since she's been out of captivity. The way she is keeping secrets from John, the way she is trying to just step in and say, I'm a Stark. Yeah. And that should be enough and people should follow me. And why aren't they listening to me? I command you. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, we call the batters and you come, damn it. And he's like, fuck you. All my people are dead. You are not Ned Stark. He gets right in her space and you're not supposed to do that to someone you respect. Right. And I think I kind of see where she's coming from, where in her mind, she's think. She, OK, so you're thinking, wow, she's not having any passion for what he just said. What he just explained where, where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. But I think in her mind, she was like, this is what I went through. I've been through a lot of shit, too. I think she would have been better off and she might have won him over if she just said, I understand why you feel this way and what happened to you. Let me explain what I've been through as being a Stark. So it's, again, the Stark name has punished you. The Stark name has punished me. And... And this is my goal and why we need you, blah, 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 blah. And, like, explain it to him. I think that would have been so much better. It would have been so much more political and tugged at his heartstring because, obviously, he's talking about uh, an emotion of what he's gone through. Right, not why. a responsibility. They have, they have fulfilled their duty already, and their duty yeah. has cost them all. And now they need to regroup what little they have left. And... Again, I think it just highlights that she is not able to be a Davos in this exactly. situation and to see what her people are saying and really get it and respond from that place instead of just this kind of selfish, I need Starks. to retake Winterfell and I'm yeah. Stark. And, you know, I wondered why they didn't approach it the same way they did with the Wildlings and the Mormonts to say, we understand and we respect how much you've lost. And if this was just for a personal vendetta that we were asking you, it would be completely unfair. But here's the thing. And then talk about the White Walkers. Because mm -hmm. if you go further south, people might not believe that. And it would be a joke to say that. But these northern people, they do remember. They, they will believe that and yeah. see the danger in what's happening and, and maybe respond to it. So I was wondering why they didn't go that route and really kind of ended disastrously, but... I know why. Because it, it leads to them having a, a strong need for more people. <laughs> yeah. And that is the situation we find ourselves in where they are back to their camp sort of trying to regroup here now it looked to me like this is the same exact location where stannis had stopped prior to his siege on winterfell yes i think this is that same area uh, and that's why davos knew so much about it mm -hmm. so are they setting us up for parallels here 
of the kind of man Stannis was, the kind of man John is, the place they find themselves oh, nice. in now, being outnumbered against the wall. Not really, because it ended so shitty for, for Stannis. Well, no, they're not going to repeat it. I mean, that would be nice to show this comparison and see how much better John is. And we do see kind of a, a nod to that mm-hmm. when Sansa is sort of getting down on John. Like, who is this man Davos? This is your new right-hand man? Like, again, just kind of being a little bit naive and... and bratty like who is he he's not even from a house anybody knows and you're just gonna let him come in here and start dictating everything when clearly this is a man who has a lot of wisdom and a lot to bring to the table but what i found strange was that john was adamant that they needed to attack now they don't have enough forces but it's they they before the snow hits again and I get that. He knows the danger of winter coming, that they won't survive that weather. That's what killed Stannis. And he knows the White Walkers are coming. So they don't have time to mess around. Uh, but certainly they're not going to do very well with only this many men. And I think Sansa knows it. And so she goes back to write this letter to send via Raven. Right. Who's she writing to? Well, we read on TV Guide uh, someone took a screen capture of that that like half a second where we saw the note okay and it said we obviously we don't get to see the whole letter but it says now you of the veil and now there's i'm not reading a complete sentence there's only a few parts that you can see that's legible okay so now you dot 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 of the veil are under your command dot 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 your aid and i shall see it that you, dot, dot, dot. Okay. Another shot of the letter appears to include the phrases forfeit your and for Winterfell. Hmm. So based on that, it appears that Sansa is writing to Littlefinger, offering him a trade. But what's weird is he's already said, I will fight with you or I'll have my guys fight with you. So why does there need to be a trade? I was wondering why there was even speculation about this, because I thought it was so clear who else would she be writing to. Um, She's already sent Brienne to go try to rally Uncle Brendan, Blackfish, and the troops of River Run, which is going to be fruitless anyway, because he's embroiled in this siege against the Lannisters. He's not going to be able to leave. The only other person she knows of with a fighting army, and the one person who's even offered to help, is Mm -hmm. Littlefinger. So I think that it's clear... That's who she's writing to, um, as in she's writing to request the help of the Knights of the Vale. Not Littlefinger. But is it to Littlefinger, or does she still think Littlefinger is full of shit and she's scared to get embroiled in this with him? So is she potentially writing to Robin? The little bitch? Yeah. There we go. Okay. Knights of the Vale are under your protection now, is what the letter could say, because they are. I know that the Eerie has not bestirred itself to fight, and you honor your people, and this and that, so, you know, it's not fair for me to ask this of you, but if we win, you know, look at what the Eerie could have. Look at what the Vale could have in addition. We could win this thing together. Huh. Trying to take the power out of which won't help, but out of Littlefinger being the middleman. Right, and the only way that works is if she also includes um, Bronzion Royce, the guy who Littlefinger was shutting down in that episode, mm-hmm. who has been the one kind of 
ruling behind the scenes until Littlefinger took back the control and he's helping out Robin and so maybe she is um, addressing it to him. Like, this is for Robin, but, you know, could you help out with this? And hmm. you're really the guy in charge there. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways that could go. But I think it's, uh, we know where it's going because they kind of foreshadowed it. It's it's going to be those, guy, those mm-hmm. cats, which we need them. Okay, so we talked about River Run briefly there. This is this is a debacle. This was a great scene though, where we see Jamie and Braun leading the Lannister army up to River Run, where the two idiots, Lothar Frey and Walder Rivers, are attempting to coerce the Blackfish into surrendering the castle by threatening to execute Edmure. It's so clear these guys are idiots straight off the bat. The way they look, their people are just sort of strewn all over. There's no structure going on. And what was really funny in the books, they were actually bringing Edmure out on a daily basis and Uh putting him up on this block and putting the noose around his neck, threatening to hang him. And it was just going on so long that it was like a joke at this point. And that's why Brendan was like, yeah, hang him, hang him, because he knew they weren't going to. That's hilarious. Uh, and clearly, as soon as Jamie comes up, he can see the ineptitude, and he's just disgusted by this incompetence. So he takes charge of the seas. I love the way Jamie speaks to whoever that guy was. Yep. I mean, it showed his wit. It showed his, uh, you know, the the parts of him that we like mm-hmm. showed there because he, you know, he can be our hero many of times. He can do the right things. His head is in the right place. So more often than not. There's just like particular instances where he's the bad guy or he makes a really dumb mistake. Because of Cersei, mostly. Because of Cersei. Again, because of a woman. That's yeah. three times that we talked about that <laughs> already this episode. So uh, that was, it was funny. It was kind of lighthearted and also like, yeah, you, you little dick. You know, I just love. <laughs> oh, I love it. Him slapping him around. But also you, you see Jamie back in his element in the first time. For the first time in a long time. Because his place was always on the battlefield, fighting, Mm -hmm. being a soldier. And ever since he lost his hand, that part of his identity has been taken from him. But it wasn't replaced with anything else. There was just this giant hole where the who Jamie was is no longer there. And he couldn't find that again. But we see him coming in now with his Lannister armor on yeah which we haven't seen since season one because he's been wearing uh kingsguard white armor that's right so he's back in this badass armor he's coming in he's telling people how the siege is going to be run what's going to happen he's turning to braun and giving braun orders and braun's like yeah i'm right on it man and (laughs) you could just see his confidence returning uh right up until the next yes before we get that i i you just reminded me the Comic relief of Braun is always well received for me because it's such a serious show. And like when he talks, it's just always funny because it it's kind of like brother to, you know, dudes fucking with each other. But there's always the underlining truth behind everything he says. Yeah. And he's the only one that could ever get away with talking the way he does. And I, I, I feel like with Jamie's hand gone, if we all had two little figures of ourselves on the left and right, but instead of, you know, good versus evil, it would be like confidence versus um, the part of you that doesn't believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. Braun is always that guy to whisper like, 
you have no hand, buddy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like do it in it like a in a funny way. Yeah, that it doesn't hurt as much. Yeah, I love that sort of stinging remark that he makes about don't even talk to me about the Lannisters always pay their debts. Yeah, because okay. he's constantly in I've that. I've been promised shit from Tyrion. I've been promised shit from, <laughs> from Cersei. You? I've been promised shit from you. I've been traipsing all over the world. Yes. All I want is my castle and my fucking wife and I can't get any of that. So, <laughs> it really, it's great to see him back on screen. We've been wondering for a while when we're going to get him back and their duo is just as great as it ever was. Oh yeah, you're feeling really good about this. Uh, I like I like their duo just as much as I like Tyrion and uh, Varys. Yeah, those two, both of those, they steal the scene every time they're together. I love it. What sucks about this is you almost forget for a minute that it's the Tullys you're rooting for. Mm-hmm. You know, because you they're so far removed from the Starks in our main storyline of who we cared about in the beginning. This is Catelyn's family, not Ned. It's Catelyn's uncle, who we barely even saw this entire series. It's River Run, a place we don't have real allegiance to. And yet we have been very close to Jamie this whole time. Yeah. So when they true. do confront each other, that sinking feeling kind of comes back to us. You know, the blackfish comes out and Jamie attempts to parley with him. Now we see the opposite side of Jamie. The part that he said he looks stupid. His it's confidence like, is smashed. Yeah. Because the Blackfish is one of these older guys that we talk about. Not only that, he's fierce. So he's a warrior. He has taken charge of shit there. And he is not giving up his home. No. He's seen what's happened to people that try to make deals or try to leave their castle for other causes. And River Run is not going to be taken again. No matter what he's got to do. And he's prepared for that two-year-long siege. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll hole up in here. We'll make it happen, dude. Do you have two years? You know, he knows what's going on. He knows the shit that's going down in King's Landing, how much trouble everybody's going to be in. Jamie doesn't have time for this. You know, I always get, like, confused. Like, I forget that these people know what's going on in these other lands because, to me, there's no newspapers or internet. (laughs) How the fuck do they know? How many ravens are out there (laughs) just, like, delivering... (laughs) Mail by mail by mail by mail. Sometimes they don't. Like, I don't think he has any idea what's going on in the North right now until Brienne's going to come and tell him. Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, So the important things, travelers that pass through spreading news. I guess King's Landing, whatever happens in King's Landing, everyone knows. Okay. Yeah, ravens being sent. I mean, if you're the head of a major household, you probably do have ravens going back and forth so you can know the big things happening in the kingdom. Um, But... Yeah, so the Blackfish, he doesn't hmm. buy any of Jamie's bullshit. I'm not afraid of you. This is not like a thing. You do what you got to do. And Jamie turns around, and what is he going to do? Seriously. He's going to lose men, too. He's going to lose half of that army. We see that this is much bigger of an army than we thought. So we heard all about how the Lannister army had been halved essentially, from the wars that they had been through recently. Mm-hmm. And it was not anywhere near up to full strength. That's why they were so reluctant to do anything with them. But I think he says they have 8,000 men. I forget. <clears throat> That's a shit ton of men. But or when, four, something like that. When you have so many impending threats, like what's happening in King's Landing, can you really afford to lose? Yeah, and how long Even can a you... a third of your army. How long can you stand out there? You don't have that kind of food. You don't have provisions for that. And if the weather does start reaching into the Riverlands mm-hmm. soon... The only thing I could see is Bronn sneaking in somehow. 
Yeah. He Which sucks be because I always root for Braun. Yeah. Who do I root for? <laughs> well, I think what's going to happen is Brienne hasn't gotten there yet, but she's going to get there and she's going to try to strike some sort of deal with Jamie. Okay. What? How many books are we on? I've a- I asked you this before already. This season. the series. Yeah. Five. Okay, and this is book four, right? Jamie's storyline right now. Jamie's, I, yeah, is pretty much book four. Um, and I think so is they, the Hound. They cut out the Riverlands in the show in favor of sending him to Dorne, which never happened in the books. Dorne. And so now they've returned to this storyline. Okay. I don't. I never know what you know because you never tell anything. <laughs> so I never knew that you had an inkling that it was. The hound that was still alive. Yeah. But um, how do you think this is going to work out? And just say I already know, if you already know. Well, I don't entirely know because they have remixed so many things, what's going to happen. But I do believe, based on what's happened in the past with Brienne and the way we say that Jamie is so different and the evil influence of Cersei changes him for the worse... The good influence of Brienne has always yes. changed him for the better when she's around. Him. And we know from the previews that she's going to be, she's going to see him next. Right. So episode. I am hoping maybe that she could find a way to work this out, but it didn't look like it was ending so good in the previews when they showed this with Brienne and Pod coming there. In fact, it looked like Pod was eventually kidnapped. There's also something else that Jamie does to try to resolve it quickly, which mm-hmm. might happen next episode, so I won't say that. Okay. And uh, that could go in a different direction than what it did in the books, which could be interesting. I want Jamie to join the good side, which again, we don't know who the good side is, so right now Stark's the good side. <laughs> that would be yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, what if somebody in earnest came to Jamie, like Brienne, with this story about the White Walkers? Dude, I understand this is important, but you're really going to go to battle with all your men for the phrase sake? You're mm-hmm. fighting to give this castle back to the phrase, essentially. Does it really make that big of a difference to you? If we get some sort of compromise from the Tullys, we put this whole shit on hold right now. Yeah. Um, I think if it wasn't for King's Landing and Cersei, he might listen to that cause of the White Walkers and the impending Maybe. doom to the kingdom, but because you know some shit's going to go down with Cersei there on her own, that's not going to happen. He's going to eventually wind up marching that army right back to King's Landing. That's my prediction. Before we move on to the other storylines, I wanted to ask you to just uh, lay out right now where where we're at with who's on the Bolton side and who's on the Starks and who is left for the Starks to get on their side. Who we think we know is on the Bolton side is the Karstarks, who used to be fiercely loyal to the Starks, yep. but were the first to go over, supposedly. The Umbers supposedly went over to the Boltons. They're the ones that brought Rickon captive, Okay. though we wonder if that's really true. And so the Boltons have about 5,000 men, give or take. Uh, we don't know if they've gotten any other minor houses on their side. The Starks have the 2,000 Wilding Men, the 62 Mormont Fighters. They're worth 10 each, we heard. I think they said they did get the Manderleys on their side, which was somewhat of a bigger force in the books, but if it is them, they made it sound very small in the TV show, like a couple other minor houses. So as far as the Northmen, there's nobody that's not already on a side who's a force to be mentioned. Okay. So unless... 
the car Starks and the Umbers really aren't for the Boltons. That could be a very interesting twist. Or if they get somebody that's not of the North, like the Vale and the Erie Knights. Right. Or somebody else, the Tullys. I mean. The Umbers is the second people they went to see, right? No, the Umbers are the second people that went over to the Boltons and brought them Rickon. Okay. The Glovers are the Glovers. second people. The I have a feeling the Glovers are just, when when this goes down, they're going to stay out of it. They, they're they so wounded right now. They, they don't nothing. even have enough men to make a difference. Yeah. But yeah. like one of the currently Bolton men, what I would love is if the Boltons start to attack and the Umbers just turn right around and go on to the Stark side. Surprise! We were never really for you, Boltons. That'd be awesome. Double strength. I mean, we haven't Stark seen. Army. Have we seen anything with uh, Rickon? No, nothing. Right? No, I think this is what they're plotting, and I think this is how we're gonna find our way into Winterfell. So the whole problem was that the Starks were gonna have to do this long siege to Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Like we know, it's fiercely defending of itself. Mm-hmm. Very hard to get in there. The winter is coming. They're not going to be able to, the same way Jamie can't sit outside of River Run for two years, the Starks can't sit outside of Winterfell for six months. Mm-hmm. They don't have any time at all. So they need an inn into the castle. And I think one of these these uh, houses pretending to be for the Boltons is going to give them that inn. Ramsey's pretty, even though he's a fucking psycho, he's pretty smart at picking up shit. I hope he doesn't. Uh... We're going to be Ramsey heavy that. these next few episodes. It's going to have to be. Yeah. It's coming down to this big battle. And I think the, the veil is going to show up just in the nick of time. Somebody on the inside's going to turn. Ramsey will finally get his just due. And now hopefully we'll have our northern army Hopefully, to go start to protect that wall. I hope so. Okay, let's head over to our other big location in the Riverlands where we see that the hound has survived his wounds. Apparently he was rescued by and is now living with this small band of villagers led by warrior turned Septon Ray. He's alive! <laughs> now, I would say that I was right in predicting that he's still alive, but mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest and say that <clears throat> I was just going off a of pure emotion hoping that he was re- alive. Yeah. But I was like, if she left him alive, there's got to be a reason for that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he would survive that, but I guess someone picking him up and uh, making him better. Listen, I'm one of those people that's a firm believer that anybody you did not actually see die on screen Mm -hmm. is fair game to come back. I know a lot of people have trouble with this, and they're saying they're bringing too many people back this season. Like, it's just not practical. A lot of people also really like this episode because it was more back to the focus that they felt Game of Thrones had begun with which was the politics, the wars, the fighting, the realistic side of Game of Thrones. Like, they've kind of thinking it's a little too much magic going on in the world now. But, I don't know, maybe because I'm a book reader and because I love fantasy, there was so much magic. It was woven into, intertwined with George's story. The war, the politics, the magic, it was all one. And I love seeing the magic on screen. I love seeing people come back to life. There's so much darkness and horrible things that happen on this show. You're going to complain about characters we love coming back on screen? People are always going to complain. My goodness. But, question. These people don't have medical supplies. There's no way they do. How the fuck did they help him unless they came even if they came like five minutes after she left mm-hmm. 
How would they have Well, two them? things. People survive broken legs all of the time. I guess Even people that don't get medical treatment. I mean, if you're just lucky enough to not get an infection, to have it heal clean, if you have somebody that knows about how to treat these things and you're yeah. able to just rest and stay off it for a while... I mean, I think the main thing here is that he was a big, strong dude. Yes. His body was capable of fighting that. For many other people, they probably would have died. But he shows no... He doesn't limp or anything. He's able to, like, he throw... He does have a limp. Oh, he they does? They actually make it plain to you that he walks with a limp now, which okay. I think makes it more believable. I didn't notice that. I thought it was just the big man limp. No, he's he's got it, and I think he still is recovering to a certain extent. I think they are leading you to believe a lot of time has passed, so he's had the time to heal a bit. Um, and I think they are bringing him back just to bring him to that point in the storyline that they want him to be at, which most people are speculating will be an ultimate showdown, a brother versus brother, where he has to fight the mountain for some reason. Okay. Don't know how Jesus. that's going to happen. There's a lot of theories about how he'll get there. Well, they're both broken men. <laughs> they definitely are, and we do see him struggling over this guilt, it seems, the past sins and things that he's been through. Yeah, he's broken physically and mentally, he's emotionally. wondering why the gods haven't punished him more. Mm -hmm. The Septon's like, dude, don't you realize how bad you've had it already? Yep. And what's amazing is that this guy might even be turning him around to seeing a different way of thinking. And I think it's just what the Hound wants. I think he wants to embrace it. He's just worried that it's not going to last. Well, he knows the reality of this harsh world that you can't survive without fighting. And he tries to tell him that. Tries to tell the Septon that your people are not well defended, especially after the first incident where a trio of men arrive and attempt to extort the villagers till they find out they have no worthwhile possessions. They wind up coming back later. We see the hound chopping wood off in another area and comes back to find that the villagers have been slaughtered and Ray has been hanged. Apparently, it was made clear to us that this is the Brotherhood Without Banners that attacked the group. Yeah. I find this really strange. If this is them, what happened that they have done a complete 180? I mean... <laughs> For those of you f who forget the backstory, this group was indirectly created by Ned back in the day when he sent out a force of knights to capture the mountain who was out raiding the Riverlands mm -hmm. when he was in King's Landing and apologizing to the people. Um, perhaps I can give you justice. And so he was trying to restore peace. When Ned died and eventually Robert died, they continued to fight in that name and just became a rogue group that continued to offer protection to the commoners and the small folk, much like kind of a Robin Hood band. Well, we had in the Brothers Without Banners, we had those two main characters right? that kept it together. Beric Dondarrion and his priest, the Red Priest, Thoros of Mir. Maybe something happened to them, or maybe these three cats are um, a, a band of them and a few other ones that left went rogue yeah. themselves and yeah. they're saying they're the brotherhood yeah I, I could see that being a possibility there's two things i want to ask you before i forget mm -hmm. one what were they building either a church which i think is most likely because they seem to be a religious group or a house a castle and where where exactly i'm trying to mentally figure out where he is where they are right now just somewhere in the riverlands we really don't know but 
the Riverlands where we see River Run, Jamie, that's trying to take back the castle. Um, it's somewhere mid-continent in Essos. Okay. It's beautiful there. Tell you that much. Absolutely. They open it up, and it looks like this idyllic community. Yeah. You just know something's going to happen to them. And it's such a shame that as soon as you think the Hound is maybe being saved and turning it around, that they die, it reinforces everything that he thought, the fears that he had, that he would have to fight again. I think that he really took it to heart when the Septon was talking about violence as a disease, and you have to just stop doing it because it will infect you. But I think it's too late for him. He's already infected, and... Again, I, I will read that broken man speech later because it's so pertinent to him and what's happened to him. Uh, so I guess we can leave it there for now. Um, I, I really like him, and he seems like a nice guy right now, but we let's not forget when he was with Arya and they were fed and able to sleep that one night, and mm -hmm. he just killed that dude. And took his money. He's done Remember? some <laughs> seemingly evil things in the past, but he's also done some really good things. Yep. The There's way no defining. he protected her and kept her safe. And pretty much everything he's done, you can find a reason for it. Yep. So his greatest seeming anger, the place where it all begins, is what was done to him by his brother when he was a child. Yep. So this is why most people believe... He's back to his only purpose, like how Arya wound up being that her only purpose was revenge and anger to get violence and bring justice to these people. Uh, so they think he's back to that, and he's going to go confront the mountain now. I love that talk that he has with Brother Ray. You know, we thought for sure you were going to die before I even put you on our wagon. Mm -hmm. What kept you going? And I love the pause, and he looks, and he thinks about it. He really thinks about it, and he says hatred or anger or something like that. Mm -hmm. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's ho head over to King's Landing. Really intense couple of scenes here. We start out with the High Sparrow telling Marjorie the importance of providing King Tommen with an heir. This was a weird place for him to go. Why do you think he's pushing her having a baby with Tommen so hard? I don't know. I mean, I don't see how that helps him. And you know, I have to say this whole scene, if you look deep into it, I think it's a brilliant scene because they're both playing each other and know that they're playing each other. Mm -hmm. There's no way that the Sparrow does not know that Marjorie is playing him mm -hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. But we still don't know as viewers... What their game is. <laughs> either of them. Yeah. So when he says... I mean, the way he says it, too, it's kind of creepy, it especially is. from a priest. It but uh, <laughs> you got to fuck him. And he's, like, touching <laughs> you know? her leg while he's yeah. saying Yeah, yeah, so that was weird. weird. That was an odd thing. <laughs> uh, what is his play on that? What does he really have to gain from there being an, an heir? Well, what I theorized last time was the reason that he wants to get in so close with Tommen is to be able to have some control, to be able to kind of steer him in these decisions that he's making for the kingdom. And perhaps he knows that Tommen isn't long for this world, right? Do you think he knows that prophecy that Cersei was given way back when? Yeah. The prophecy of how all her children are going to die, even oh. if he doesn't. Oh, I don't know. 
Um, it's, it's kind of obvious that he doesn't have what it takes to make it very far in this world. Yes. So if Tommen <laughs> goes down, if the Lannisters go down, Marjorie does not remain in power. And maybe he, the Sparrow would be the one to help this baby Unless grow? Unless there's a baby, right. And now and if he, there's a baby, you have quite a long time of the advisors being the one to rule, much like Cersei was. So the Sparrow would be... So that would be it. And Marjorie's corner. I'm thinking this is my hypothesis. Uh, Marjorie is playing the sparrow side right now mm -hmm. to get revenge on Cersei. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's step one, get Cersei out of the picture, mm -hmm. which was her first issue. And then step two is to, she'll have more power. She'll have more power once Cersei's gone because now it's only her voice and the sparrow, but her voice to whisper to the king. Right, but this is the same game get the sparrow that, that Cersei was playing, a very dangerous one, which got way out of her control. And so once she eliminates Cersei, which, you know, she's pretty much already done. I mean, Cersei has kind of had almost all her power stripped from her. She's not even that fierce of an enemy anymore. But okay, we want to take her out completely. Not true, by the way. Perhaps. We'll get to that it's in a second. It's her brain. It's her brain that's the powerful thing. Her well, schemes. if she can manipulate people, but she's down to nobody in her corner to help and nobody left to manipulate. She's still in the walls of the castle. Somehow, maybe. I and don't yes, know. the king, she can still manipulate. She doesn't son. seem to give a shit what she thinks anymore. Mm. He's barely even listening to Marjorie. I mean, he's really kind of been seemingly brainwashed. But as viewers, let's not forget that she is still dangerous. Well, I also think that whatever plan Marjorie has, she has to, at the end of the day, get rid of the Sparrow somehow. And mm -hmm. how does she expect to do that? And she's also just sent the last real partner in crime that she has out of the city. So... It's a very clear threat that the High Sparrow makes against Lady Olena. In the next scene, we see Marjorie go to meet with Olena. Olena actually wants to bring her home to Highgarden, which you know is never going to happen. Marjorie refuses and says her place is here, and instead it's Olena that should go home. Mm -hmm. Olena is really convinced, I think, here for a minute that Marjorie is shot. She's lost it. She's like, holy shit, my pride and joy of the Tyrell household is lost. She's a religious fanatic nut. Yeah. So she's clearly playing it pretty well if she even sold her grandmother on this. And she barely has an inch to breathe. I mean, Septa Yunella is like following right her there. around on her ass, but she still manages to get this note to her, which even if somebody found it, not incriminating, super yep. smart. It's just a rose, but it's enough that Lady Olena knows exactly what she means. Yes. I'm still with you. I'm still with the house. And so she prepares to leave, which I'm surprised, but what else can she really do right now? Yeah. It kind of scares me that Marjorie is sending away everybody that she cares about. Does her plan involve some kind of mass destruction? I wonder. And even if she's going down, she's going to take everyone else down with her. Cersei, the Sparrows, all the rest of these corrupt fuckers. If <laughs> she dies in the process, so be it. So the last step would be getting Loras out of there, though, because we know she cares about her brother, and he's still imprisoned. Dying mentally. Yeah. Ugh. So that's the last 
link in this chain here. And uh, last we go to Cersei confronting Lady Olena, which was probably the winning scene of the night. I wonder if you're the worst person I've ever met. She lays it on her. Cersei goes in there to try to convince her to stay and fight the sparrows. I think she knows everything's slipping away from her, mm -hmm. and she still needs some kind of defense. If the Tyrell army leaves, she's really vulnerable and exposed. So she makes a last-ditch attempt. Sure, she would turn around later and stab her in the back, but right now she needs her. Oleta doesn't give a shit. Where is her Frankenstein? He was standing right there in the room. No, Frankenstein is the doctor. Oh, Kyburn. The scientist, I mean. Yeah. Well, I think I know where he is, but I will keep my mouth shut for now. Well, that's what I mean by she's still dangerous because something is a Bruin. Yeah, I think he's he's afoot. I think big stuff's about to go down. But I think we're going to see a trial first. I think that's what's next. Do they have time? We're at episode eight. I yeah, think, they have time. I think okay. they'll do it next episode. And then I think when that blows up, episode nine will be the... Fuckness the of culmination. King's Landing. The culmination. Yeah. Of, no, I don't think King's Landing is going to have a resolve this season. I think the resolve is going to be Winterfell. Okay, so they'll stall that after the trial. I think so. And we won't see that till. They'll stall that and then basically set it up in episode ten. Mm-hmm. Okay, two more locations. Let's go quick through Volantis, where Theon and Yara have taken the Iron Fleet to get some supplies. They've stopped at the Long Bridge. Mm -hmm. You might recognize this location as the place where Jorah was able to capture Tyrion. Yep. Same kind of thing. They're in a brothel, living it up. Yara tries to encourage Theon to regain his identity and his confidence because she's going to need his help if they're going to put this plan into place. And she does, in fact, confirm that the plan is to take the fleet to Marine and try to forge an alliance with Danny before their uncle Yuri can. She's like, hey, Danny said they need a thousand ships. We have a thousand ships. We didn't hear her say that. We don't know how she needs that. We know that crazy uncle Euron had this idea to yeah. bring her some ships and to marry her. So let's just do that plan. Mm-hmm. And instead of marrying him, she can marry me because it turns out that I'm a lesbian. Yeah. I think. Now, people are automatically assuming that. No, I think. I think just she's like the Greeks, just like they go both iron, ways. Well, and she's just like a typical ironborn man. Mm -hmm. They're stopped at port. She wants to get drunk and fuck some people. Mm -hmm. And so this girl is pretty, and why not? I think yeah. she lives that way, like she's uh, a man ruler. I like her. Uh, let's just point out that these peeps and also Jamie, again, they found a magic horse that just lets them travel. Ooh, they got to I mean, I guess a lot of time, fast, but one episode to the other, maybe it's been like a month. Yeah, I think that the a lot of people have had problems with this, the traveling, the passage of time, but Benioff and Weiss have made it very clear that if they tried to follow a strictly linear equation, things would never work out. So it is very heavily suggested that, you know, perhaps two days has passed in Bravos mm -hmm. and two months has passed in Volantis. I'm fine with that. They don't Keep the up. story moving. Don't do the walking dead slow. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. I'm they got there. That. Who cares how they got there? This scene is 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 just like many of the scenes in this episode. 
you know, there's not that much action, but there's so much going on mentally and and politically. She is an ironborn. She's no therapist. And she says it straight up. If you're going to give up, you might as well slit your, your wrists right now. Do it. Just do because it you're no way. help to me. But if you want to be a help to me, if you want to be who you are meant to be, this is what I need from you. Well, and they're they're like a Viking culture. We see that. Oh, yeah. They're they're very strong. Take what's yours. We remember the speech that Balon gave to Theon way back in the day when mm-hmm. he came home and he saw that he had turned into like this Winterfell prince and this is not the way we live. What are you doing here? You prancing fool. And <laughs> and so she's like that as well that the way you are right now, not only are you no good to me, you're no good to yourself. You're no good to anybody. What is this life if this is the way you live it forever? Yep. So either do something about it, be a man and take your life or start living it again. Go back to the Theon that you were. Is that still there? Is it still possible? And he struggles with it at first, but I think this is exactly the approach he needed. This is what shows him that she cares and that he has to turn it around. And so when he finally looks back up at her, we see a glimmer of that. Of his old self. Yeah. It was very well done. This is must have been a difficult couple of seasons for this actor because he's had to uh, break himself down and endure a lot of pain in his face so that we can read it and then be able to like switch it like that. He is almost good. solely acting through his facial expressions, mm-hmm. his body language. And him and her, they really did an amazing job, these two actors, of portraying mm-hmm. the emotions flying back and forth in this scene. Also, I really loved in an interview what she said later, the actress that plays Yara. They were asking her about the fact that she hasn't really retaliated or come back against much yet. And she says, well, you know, Yara's playing the long game. It's like chess, and she plays several moves ahead, which makes her a brilliant candidate to lead. She understands exactly how things will play out. Out of the younger characters, meaning not the older people that we've been seeing die, Mm -hmm. she reminds me the most of those kinds of characters who, you know, she might as well have years of war behind her, the way she speaks and acts and plans. I mean, she got into Ramsay's castle to, to save him and then got out unscathed as well yeah this is again like we were talking about how little lady Lyanna mormont was old beyond her years because of the culture she was raised in yara was raised in the same kind of culture and she does have a lot of experience under her belt so she is this very strong tough woman who is capable of leading so they stopped here for a reason i mean they didn't just show us philantis and this beautiful shot again imagery like two seconds we see the long bridge but how much went into making that exquisite panoramic view. I don't think they're showing us that for no reason. The last time we saw, we mentioned Tyrion making a pit stop in Volantis. He was captured by Jorah. Mm -hmm. Now, we know Jorah was sent out on a mission to find a cure. We don't know where he is. Do we think it's possible that he comes back here and runs into these two characters? Because she's going back to Danny with these ships, and if he comes back to her with these guys and a whole bunch of ships that puts him right back in a really good position. I I love where your head's at. I think it fits too perfectly for it mm-hmm. to happen. But that would be cool. Plus he hasn't found a cure yet and that's what she sent him to do. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, he's. I think it's at the point in his storyline where he has to help himself right now. Yeah. It's progressing. So, uh, I, I love that storyline. I don't think it's going to happen that way. Okay, and our last location is Bravos. Maybe the most difficult to understand. Uh. Arya secures passage back to Westeros by bribing a traitor to leave at dawn. Throwing money around. Very not like her. Also very not like her, then traipsing around the alleys, completely unconcerned, and she's attacked and stabbed in the stomach repeatedly by the waif. She falls off the bridge and only barely escapes. Okay. All right, this is completely different from how we left her last episode. Mm -hmm. In the dark, very careful. We were like, oh, she's got her shit Ready together. Ready to go. Yeah. Ready to fight, being smart about it. Yeah. It, it didn't make sense to me. And also, in our podcast last episode, I said, if she dies after all this, there is no payoff and you wasted our time, they better not do that. And they won't because they haven't fucked us like that. So two theories floating around. One is that she was doing this on purpose to bait the waif into something. Mm-hmm. That would make sense, except then we see her stumbling around in the streets, really hurt, looking paranoid like people are out to get her without seemingly a plan of helping herself. Where was that plan going if she meant to bait her in? Right. Um, how did she just let herself get hurt so bad? Or it's not really her. Yeah. It's Jockin or somebody else wearing an Aria face. Because people believe that Jockin has actually been testing the waif in addition to Arya mm -hmm. to see if she would actually do this. This goes against everything he's been saying. If she now attacks Arya, she needs to go. And okay, but even if this is Jockin or somebody else hired, again, why do we see this point of view of then stumbling around aimlessly in the streets dying? It appears. <sighs> Why give us that extra scene there? To fuck with our heads? I'm thinking, I don't know if I believe this, but going off of what you just said, what if the, the waif is the one that's dressed like Arya? And what's his name? Jockin, Jockin is the waif. is the waif. So she dressed like Arya. To bait Arya out. To bait Arya out. So that Arya sees this girl looking like her and is like, what the hell is going on? And gets her out in the open. Because the, the Jockin would not get stabbed like that. Mm -hmm. What is he learning? What is he teaching? So <laughs> she went to go try to make somebody suffer the way he said not to. So he's going to make her suffer by stabbing her that way and leaving her for dead. Perhaps. And so now she's stumbling around the streets because she's looking like who will, who Arya could be coming after me. Jockin could be coming yeah. after me. It makes Maybe. sense. The only thing that bothers me with the storyline is that Jockin said you can do it. And I think, I don't believe that this crew works that way. I think if you're told by your superior that you can, then you can. Well, maybe he was testing her the same way he was testing Arya. I'm telling you, you could do this, but you know you're really not supposed to. So are you going to try or not? But did he say it? Did it seem that way when he said it last episode? It seemed like he was being particularly like, oh, whatever. Yeah, I Because I think Arya's still in that cave or that room. She's still in that room. But he also said, don't make her suffer. Yeah, but you, okay. Yep. 
Uh, I don't know. Very confusing. I I'm really eager to see where they go next with this one. Whew. I know that it's clear that something was happening. This was not just Arya walking around doing no. these things that Arya would too never simple. do. Do you think we're going to find out next episode or wait? have to wait? Well, I know I'm bouncing around. We normally don't do our sneak peek quite yet, but mm -hmm. I'm going to take this segment out of order so that I can tell you the answer to that. So sneak peek through the heart tree at our upcoming episode, episode eight, which is entitled No One. Clearly, oh, okay. we're Arya heavy on an right. episode well, entitled No One. Um, it's directed by Mark Millot again, written by Benioff and Weiss. And there are a couple of different ways that this plot line is summarized. So they say, Jamie weighs his options while Cersei answers a request. Tyrion's plans bear fruit or Tyrion seeks a strange ally. Arya faces a new test or Arya is given a chance to prove herself. This is depending on which version you're listening to of the summary. So she gets a new test or she's given a chance to prove herself. Both ways hint at Jockin had a bigger plan and now she really is passing this test and getting a chance to, to show what she's worth. I think that's a better payoff than her leaving regardless because it, was, it, it feels like a wasted amount of time. And I really liked Jockin. Yep. So this would make me like him again. Uh, yeah. I can't wait. Okay, so what do you give this episode for your Raven rating? Before we do that, um, we forgot to talk about the director. The director of the episode? Yep. Mark Millot? Yeah. He's one of our veteran Game of Thrones directors. One of the two that always deliver. Yeah. So the last four episodes are, are always by these two cats. So we, we're at seven and eight, which is the big build-up, the big setup. Mark Millad. And then we have nine, which is the bang. And then ten, which is the, it's still awesome, but it's a setup for the next season. Which will be Miguel Sapochnik. Be ready for some shit. These last <laughs> few episodes are going to be awesome. Memorable. I mean, this whole season, this is my favorite season. It's amazing. There's always a payoff, and I love it. I'm excited about that. So I'm going to give this a rating of... 7.6 to 7.8 Ravens. I think it was a little better than last time, only because there was so much storyline happening. There was so much psychology and setup that really meant there was no, no wasted scene here. Everything yeah. meant something. Yep. Yes, it wasn't as action-filled, but you know what? Sometimes you can put action in it, and that's a wasted scene. Kind of like uh, a certain Targaryen making another speech <laughs> so 7.6 7.8 and again just to remind you that does not mean anything as far as bad but i have to give some clarity or some some space between my nines and my sevens and eights and i think i gave it an eight last episode yes so i'll go up a little bit i guess to like 8.3 uh i liked it just a little bit more than last time because we did get more plot development more advancement I loved the Septon Maribald hound scene, even though it was kind of different from the books. Like I said, the beautiful portrayal of the different areas that we saw, the backgrounds, the visuals, and there was that jump back to the politics and mm -hmm. the scheming behind the good old Game of Thrones, which I enjoyed. It's very rare when I say the politics of this episode was amazing. <laughs> Only in Game of Thrones I'll say that. Or in House of Cards. So who owns the throne for you this week? 
As long as I'm standing, the war's not over. Blackfish. His wit, his badassery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was amazing. His no fear and his character now is a reminder to me of all of these characters, these strong, older characters that we've already lost. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has this emotion behind it. When he talks, I'm like, hell yeah, <laughs> you know? And uh, I just, I want him to pull through. If we go along the uh, Game of Thrones patterns, he's probably going to die. But <laughs> at this point, he owned the throne. I think he can prevail through this. Well, I'm glad you said him because he's one of my favorite characters. He definitely owned this week. Lady Olena definitely had an amazing speech and put Cersei in her place. Maybe the first person to actually do so ever on Game of Thrones. But because I might only have one episode to say it, I have to give it to little Lady Lyanna Mormont. She was just incredible. I think she portrayed being a leader of the household brilliantly for a 10-year-old girl. I got chills. Oh, she was great. When she said... We will not break faith today. Yeah. So we have been loyal to the Starks for many, many years, and we're not going to break that today. Oh, yeah, I like, I like that. I like where you're at. I wanted to stand up and be like, yeah, I'm with you too. She was great. I believed her. And I saw her with the army when Jon Snow and Sansa were talking, and Sansa was saying, like, we don't have enough men. Who's this cat that you're listening to? She mm-hmm. was in the background. So she's with them, at least where they're at right now. I missed that if that's the case. She was. Wow. I don't know what that deal is. It'd be nice if she's, if she's with them, if she spoke to the, uh, the other cat with yeah. them. But what you spoke about, Elena Tyrell, I agree with you that she is a badass. I think she steals scenes, but her character is not big enough as of yet. I don't know what's going to happen, but her character does not have enough weight in the storyline to own the throne she's, but she still scenes she's be- and she's behind the scenes because she was the one that orchestrated joffrey's death mm-hmm. but we just never saw that enacted because it was through other people right but she is great and everything that's going on in king's landing makes you wonder how important this power is we talk about that a lot about what the throne's going to mean eventually and i go back to that one speech i mentioned earlier that varis gave the riddle he poses about power he says there are three great men a king a priest and a rich man between them stands a common sellsword each great man bids the sellsword to kill the other two who lives and who dies The answer is, it depends, because power resides where men believe it resides. It's a trick. It's a shadow on the wall. Hmm. In another scene where he's talking with Littlefinger, they talk about the realm and about how he does what's good for the realm. Littlefinger says, the realm, do you know what that is? It's the thousand blades of Aegon's enemies, a story we agree to tell each other over and over again until we forget that's a lie. And Vary says, but what do we have left once we abandon the lie? Chaos, a gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Littlefinger says, chaos isn't a pit, it's a ladder. Oh, well, that makes sense for him to say that. So, I mean, if you go back to one of the most epic speeches between two of the most powerful men who are still out there, Littlefinger in Westeros and Varys in Essos, despite all the people dying around them, and despite the politicking becoming less important, they still find a way to make that essential to the storyline. Um, are these two unlikely people going to be the two that are left at the end of it all? 
I wouldn't doubt Littlefinger being left at the end of it all. I wouldn't doubt Varys being left. Well, that's true, yeah. People come and go, kings die, and they remain. Right there in the shadows, yep. Okay, so this was an excellent episode. We have just one thing left. Unfortunately, no Wolf Watch again this week. <coughs> um, but I did promise that I would go back to talking about the character Ray from the TV show, who we know as Septon Maribald in the books, gave an amazing speech called The Broken Man. I'm going to read this excerpt. It's a couple of minutes, so if you don't wish to hear, you know what it is. <laughs> Uh, maybe fast forward a little bit, but for those of you who are interested, really poignant. The Septon says, Is a broken man an outlaw? Not really. There are many sorts of outlaws, just as there are many sorts of birds. A sandpiper and an eagle both have wings, but they are not the same. Outlaws are evil men, driven by greed, soured by malice, despising the gods and caring only for themselves. Broken men are more deserving of our pity, though they may be just as dangerous. Almost all are common-born, simple folk, who have never been more than a mile from the house where they were born, until one day some lord came around to take them off to war. Poorly shod and poorly clad, they march away beneath his banners, oft-times with no better arms than a sharpened hoe or a maul they made themselves, by lashing a stone to a stick with strips of hide. Brothers march with brothers, fathers with sons, friends with friends. They've heard the songs and the stories, so they go off with eager hearts, dreaming of the wonders they will see, the wealth and the glory they'll win. War seems a fine adventure, the greatest most of them will ever know. Then they get a taste of battle. For some, that one taste is enough to break them. Others go on for years until they lose count of all the battles they've fought in. But even a man who has survived a hundred fights can break in the hundred and first. Brothers watch brothers die. Fathers lose their son. Friends see their friends trying to hold their entrails in after they've been gutted by an axe. They see the lord who let them there cut down, and some other lord shouts that they are his now. They take a wound, and when that's still half healed, they take another. There is never enough to eat. Their shoes fall to pieces from marching. Their clothes are torn and rotting. If they want new boots or a warmer cloak, they need to take it off a corpse. And before long, they're stealing from the living, too, from the small folks whose lands they're fighting in, Men very like the men they used to be. And one day they look around and realize all their friends are gone. They're fighting beside strangers under a banner they hardly recognize. They don't know where they are or how to get back home. The Lord they're fighting for doesn't know their names, yet here he comes. The knights come down on them, and the iron thunder of the charge seems to fill the world, and the man breaks. He turns and runs, steals away in the black of night to find some place to hide. All thought of home is gone. The kings and the lords and the gods mean less to him than a piece of spoiled meat that will let him live one more day. The broken man lives from day to day, from meal to meal, more beast than man. In times like these, we should beware of him, but we should pity him as well. That's the hound to the T. Oh, that's why I said I know it's a long speech, and no wonder they had to cut it all down for TV, but... You don't get the full picture until you hear that. Mm -hmm. And how much the Septon knew where he'd been. Like he'd walked in his shoes and he'd known how he got there. You know, he's not an evil person. He's a broken man. Yeah. I, I have to say, again, Ian McShane, he did a great job at, in his character portrayal, mm -hmm. kind of 
putting all of that speech in his little speech, but still making us feel that way. Yeah, that same impact, right? I mean, incredible. That shows what a good actor he is and what a good actor the Hound is in responding to that with his visuals. But this is why the books are still so great. And sometimes you have to get to that source material to get the full picture and those amazing words. So just a little unofficial promo to encourage you to go out there. And if you have not yet, especially coming up to the end of our season, unfortunately, it'll be here before you know it. uh, The off season's a great time to read it. And maybe we'll talk about that more in the future. To that effect, our next podcasts after Game of Thrones, obviously, will be Mr. Robot. If you guys haven't listened to Mr. Robot or watched Mr. Robot, you have to watch season one. It's amazing. It's a great show. And then listen to our podcast. Go back to where we have it titled Mr. Robot, obviously, and listen to those. Those were great podcasts, and those were great episodes. And we did really well at predicting on that one as well. Season two coming out, and uh, that's that's going to be our next step. Before we sum this up and zip it up, <laughs> I had uh, one more thing. Really cool. Nerdist Network, Chris Hardwick's uh, Nerdist right. people. Yep. He sold it to Disney, but he's still a main part for five years. Like Progressively, he loses a little bit more control. Okay. They have this video series called Bloodworks, where this cat, Scott Ian, who's like a, uh, he's, he's like a hip-looking like, uh, weirdo with a big beard, uh, just like a spike beard. Not the whole face, just the chin. <laughs> okay. He looks like a badass. Um, he goes around and he does like these popular shows and movies. He gets into the trenches. He's able to go behind the scenes. Walking Dead, he went in there and he they dressed him up as a walker. Oh, wow. In this case, they, did, uh, they released part one of the clip. There's two parts. In this one, he goes behind the scenes to check out how Game of Thrones make their giants and their children come to life on screen. Uh, you get to see the amount of work that goes behind the scene, the amount of weapons. He goes into the weapon room. They have swords galore. They have helmets. They have everything that you don't think about when you see an army in in a 10-second clip (laughs) that someone's building all of these. Mm. And he goes through. He shows you that every sword, they even built It's this company. It was actually a small company. Now it's large because of their affiliation with Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Their first sword or dagger that they built was a, uh, uh, what is it called when you cut a penis off? (laughs) castration okay it's a castration knife that you never see on screen but he shows it and it's detailed as if it's going to be like shown up front Uh, on screen uh, zoom in close up (laughs) that was their first dagger that they made you guys should check it out it's on uh, the nerdist network just do bloodworks one of the things i loved is they talk about the giant which was great and I'll let you watch it to get the details on. It's this actor. He's only seven foot one. I say only because <laughs> the giant's like ten foot something. Yeah. But he's seven foot one, and they show you the hands they made. This this uh, these fake hands that are movable. You put your hand in there, and you can move every joint, oh, and wow. it looks real. And they have separate types of hands, and they're really heavy. But it zips up to the bodysuit that he wears, mm-hmm. so the actual suit kind of carries it for him. Mm-hmm. The makeup that goes behind it. But what I really loved is when they talk about the children of the forest. Mm. And we complained that it's a new actor that plays Leaf. Yeah. And they explain it why. And I'll let you get a a listen real quick to a clip of why. 
So this is one of the children of the forest, which they first unveiled these characters. It was in season four, and it was actually that, that scene with all the zombies coming out of the ice, basically right. attacking Bran and Mira. I think the VFX department had designed these beautiful, elaborate characters, and they're kind of these sort of woodland, mystical sort of characters. On paper, looking at the design was going to require a lot of prosthetics. It was a young girl who was cast, I think she was about 11 or 12, and she just had the best physique. She was an incredible actress. But unfortunately, with being a child actor, is you only have um, so many okay. filming hours. Right, right. So for us to stick her in elaborate makeup, then film, which you should probably have about 20 minutes filming a day basically after we finish with her. These characters have now been introduced in season six. To date, this is, this is our most elaborate prosthetics that we've done for the show and they were full body prosthetics wow. that we did on these guys. So we had our sort of hero days where we were going to have our beauty shots where they were going to be full screen, full body, what have you, which were these hideous hours we were getting up like at 1am, what have you, to wow. do a whole day's work basically and then step on set and film, film to whatever time in the evening and then de-rig and start again the following day. The Night King turns up with his army of White Walkers. And so they continue to go on about uh, oh the, the Night King turns up with his White Walkers, they had a whole set of, of like 70 people and only three, which is the behind the scenes people filming and everything, are without makeup. So they had wow. to do all this makeup. And the turnaround time, uh, he said, it's very quick. I mean, obviously he's being polite. Basically he's saying, we have to work all the time and we have to turn over these amazing makeups yeah. right away. And again, what's really cool is this was a tiny company that was... Bought, brought on just to make one makeup that they needed real quick and he did so well that they asked him to do another one and he was just hired as a freelancer and then they called him and said we need you full-time on here that seems like a popular theme starting with uh, benioff and weiss themselves being the ultimate fans who didn't have much experience with creating a tv show yeah but we're just so in love with it and you can tell Every single episode, how much work goes into everything from the locations they're filming at to the costumes they're wearing to the set productions and the languages they develop so that it'll be realistic and just <laughs> hours and hours. Every single half a millimeter of a second that's on screen on TV is probably days, weeks, months of preparation and planning and oh, yeah. you know this highlights that really well i would encourage you if you don't already own them to go out and buy the tv series the box sets uh dvds that include all of the extras oh, yeah. the histories the lore the background they get more into this more into amazing things that if you're a fan and you just want to know more about it it's so interesting like you're talking about this this, um, this video clip. here. Yeah. And it, it's visually intriguing too. So definitely check it out. And that's part one. Part two, mm -hmm. Scott Ian is going to be dressed as a walker. Or I'm sorry, a white. I keep saying that this this uh, episode. He's going to get dressed as white. Okay. And it looks really cool. Wow. So, uh, I mean, it's just, it brings it to life knowing what, what happens behind the scenes. And really, it makes you appreciate what you're seeing. Yeah. What goes into it. Yeah. He talks about how in that scene when the mountain is digging his fingers into uh, what's-his-name's eyes, mm -hmm. the prosthetics they had to make for that, and how long it took them. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. 
So yeah, definitely check that out. It's a labor of love. Yes. I mean, I think every single person that works on this show has to be pretty much in love with the Game of Thrones story and dedicated to doing it justice and having it be this amazing production that you finally see on screen that we are just one of many podcasts out there who mm -hmm. spend hours dissecting it because it's incredible and we want to talk more about it and think more about it. And in the off season, it's so sad to be without it. Uh, we're going to have to do more research into it to let you know, but it looks like we are going to be having a season seven and eight, but smaller. So divided up into not quite 10 episodes a season. Right, like seven or eight episodes. I don't know why they're doing that. Are they running out of money? I don't understand. Well, we were only supposed to get seven seasons. Right. So they have extended it another season, but just shortening them up a little bit. And I think they still want to stay true to the storyline. They don't want to drag it out past mm -hmm. the point where it needs to go. Um, I wonder if they're trying to keep pace a little bit better with George's books so that they could stay true to that story. I'm not really... No, there's no way. It takes him a couple of years per book. Well, right. But like six will be out hopefully sometime soon. Right. And I think they're still going to have more material to cover in next season about six. So... I don't know. We're going to definitely look more into that as more information comes out, but at least we will have two more seasons to be with you and to podcast about Game of Thrones. We look forward to that. Thank you, as always, for listening. Here's, a, here's to hoping that uh, they release another Game of Thrones, which talks about the predecessor to this game that they played, and we find out about the Mad King and all that. We get this and they very that well would be might. amazing. That <laughs> yeah. would be great. <laughs> This uh, sums up this episode. Thank you for listening. An hour and 40 minutes we're at. <laughs> we just want to remind you and, again, thank you for listening. And just give us some stars on iTunes and give us a rating. And tell your friends about it. Keep the word spreading. And uh, check out our Facebook, Twitter. We'll see you next time for our episode 8 review of No One. Until next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.